a Lifetime Original Podcast. This episode covers topics that include murder and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. November 29th, 1980. It's the weekend after Thanksgiving in Denver, Colorado, and Joanne Hicks is home alone with her three toddlers. She's never liked the quiet of nighttime by herself. It's eerie to her. She even asks her friends to stay with her. But her friends were all too busy to stay over while her husband Dan is in Albuquerque for work. But she won't be alone for long. She's expecting company. Dan's bookie is stopping by tonight to deliver some gambling winnings from football bets. It'll be nice to have another adult in the house, at least for a moment. Joanna's on the phone with Dan when she hears him knocking. She walks him inside as she says goodnight to Dan, but as soon as she hangs up the phone, the bookie draws a gun. Joanne's worst nightmare is her terrifying reality. Her three kids are asleep in the other room, and she's all alone. The only option is to beg for her life. She tells him that her father is wealthy, that she could pay him handsomely. She promises the bookie whatever he wants if he lets her live. Between her pleas for mercy, the bookie tells her to calm down. He tells her he will spare her life if she lets him tie her up. She reluctantly agrees. He forces her into the bedroom and has her lie on the bed. And while her back is turned, he pulls a knife from his sleeve. He stabs her in the back several times. Then he's gone without a trace. Early the next morning, her four-year-old son would find her body drenched in blood. He would rush to the neighbor's house terrified and confused, and the scars of this memory would only cut deeper as the true story of his mother's murder is uncovered. I'm Quinlan Posner. And I'm Carrie Ipema. And this is Crime of a Lifetime. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. As soon as her husband, Dan Hicks, hears the news, he catches a plane from Albuquerque to Denver. Joanne's mom has already come to take care of the kids right away. His son is, of course, traumatized by what he's seen, but luckily the other two little kids slept through everything. I mean, this is a massive shock to the entire family because in addition to being absolutely devastated by the loss of Joanne, They're also asking so many questions. It just doesn't make sense. Who would want to kill Joanne? A little bit about her. She's 24 years old. She's a mom and she has no enemies. And it's not like it was a robbery because nothing is stolen in the house. The only sort of explanation that people can arrive to is that maybe it's just a random act of violence. But we know at this point that those are really extraordinarily rare. Right. And and we don't know if Dan tells the police about this bookie stopping by that night. But 
you would like to think, yeah, yeah, of course he did. Mm-hmm. Dan wouldn't have a bookie that he couldn't trust, right? And we all know bookies are notoriously trustworthy. It's why <laughs> if I have to give my kid a godparent, it's going to be a bookie, you know? <laughs> a I bookie mean, every time. It's a bookie. It sounds a little bit like a wookie, but it's a bookie. Yeah, at this, but at this point, truly, nobody has any idea what really happened. All they know is what the crime scene tells them. And by sheer lack of evidence, investigators do what they do. They look at the husband. Right, that's standard procedure. But it must be really hard to grieve, to grieve for your dead wife, but also to have to prove your innocence to the police at the same time. I mean, we see this happen all the time. If they don't have any suspects, they look towards the husband. So who is the husband? Who is this Dan Hicks or Daniel Hicks for long? He's 28 years old. He's a family man. He's a dad. He's a salesman. Um, And as far as anyone from the outside can tell, he and Joanne are a really happy couple. They're sort of living this idyllic suburban life. It's like if you saw their Christmas card, you'd be like, huh. Happy family. Yeah, and to be clear, from the get-go, Dan provides an alibi and it checks out. He was out of town at the time of the murder. He's got the receipts to prove it. People saw him there. There is no way he could have been there when this happened. He can't be the perpetrator, and they know that. Right, and also what's even crazier is that nine days after the murder, Dan becomes a target too. Someone attempts to douse his car with flammable liquid and set it on fire. I mean, the car doesn't actually catch on fire. It doesn't really work, but you can see that they targeted his car. He is not around for this attack, so he doesn't get hurt. But it does feel like this is some foreboding evidence that someone might want Dan dead, too. And it makes one wonder if Joanne was ever the target at all. Maybe Dan was meant to be the victim all along. But this sort of targeted Dan moment doesn't really distract the police from sort of their main target, which is still Dan. Over the next year, they stay laser focused on their investigation of Dan in regards to the murder of Joanne. The Denver district attorney named Dale Tooley recalls that it was an exhaustive inquiry. They talk to his friends. They talk to his family. They start to paint a picture of who this guy is and what possible motives he might have for killing his wife. And what do they find out? They find out that Daniel Hicks is an avid golfer. He golfs at a very hoity-toity Denver country club. Uh, I used to see fireworks there when I was a kid, actually. We'd uh, sneak in. We were not members, but you could get in for the fireworks. Listen, there were some high-rent fireworks. In Dan's short career, he's been the manager of a men's clothing store, and he's been a traveling salesman for a children's wear manufacturer, which is actually the job he was traveling for when his wife, Joanne, was murdered. So we're painting the picture here of a family that is very comfortable. They're upper middle class. But that doesn't seem to be enough for Dan. He wants more. He wants his family to have more. And so he tries to get more. Yeah, I, I actually, he tries to get a lot more. He kind of has an unhealthy obsession with money, you might say. He talks about wanting to be rich all the time to everyone. And he is very publicly sort of scheming and wheeling and dealing and looking for ways to make that money fast, even if the way of getting the money might be, I don't know, like a little bit dishonest. He's like that friend who always has a new business idea or an investment opportunity. 
and asks if you want to grab a drink with him and you know it's just going to end up with him asking you to invest $10,000 in a new business and so you have to politely turn him down again and again and again. It's just, frankly, exhausting. I totally know what you're talking about. It's that person that is like hitting you up on Facebook Messenger to uh, get you to, I don't know, join a pyramid scheme or an MLM. Well, his history with money obviously gets the attention of the police and they want to know more about these schemes. So what they do is they send a cop to the Denver Country Club undercover. This guy poses as a golfer, and his aim is to make friends with Dan, but unfortunately for them, the cop's cover is blown right away before he even gets a chance to play a round of golf with Dan. And I just, this to me is just a funny moment where it's like, I want to know how, is it just like a small town, or was someone just like, Joe, is that you? Why do you have the name Tom on your name tag? That's weird. That's not your name. And and Joe's over there being like, shoot, what am I going to do? Or I picture he's like in one of those areas that has all the TVs talking to some people and as he's introducing himself, a story about him pops up on the news on the TVs. Local undercover police officer. He's like, hey, my name's Tom and the TVs and he's like, Joe, I'm Joe, I'm Joe, I'm a cop. (laughs) I gotta get out of here. Never mind. Anyway, we don't know how it went down, but however it went down, it, it doesn't stop them from trying to find a different means to get at Dan. And nearly a year after Joanne's death, on October 8th, 1981, police surrounded him on the charges of felony theft. The charges stem from a check that Dan wrote in 1980 for plane tickets to Las Vegas. Those charges had been dropped a month ago, but they found a way to reinstate them and go after Dan. Well, I think we figured out how they found a way to reinstate them. It was like the only thing that they could do to get him into questioning or to investigate further. And Dan is absolutely apoplectic. He refuses to go down without a fight. He's in a standoff with police in Lakewood, Colorado. He's not even holding a gun at the police. He's holding a gun to himself. He's threatening to kill himself if they don't back off. This feels like a big escalation from a bounced check. Yeah, Dan pulled an OJ before OJ. Oh, good. For, he's a trendsetter, this guy. <laughs> He is. That's why he's in fashion. Seriously, though, it's it's hard not to see a connection between his wife's death and his extreme reaction, this behavior. It just really seems like Dan is struggling. And this standoff lasts three hours until Dan finally gives up. He relents. He cooperates with the investigators, and I think the cops must feel bad for him for some reason at this point because they end up not arresting him. Somehow I, like, feel like I'm there and the whole situation does feel very embarrassing. Like, a standoff and then you, like, are like, uh, I won't kill myself, I'll go with you. And everyone's they, kind of, like, embarrassed and not talking about it in the car ride. But they don't arrest him? Like, unless he goes to, like, the hospital for some mental health checks, right? Maybe that's what happens. But If that's what happened, good for you guys. That seems like the way to go because there is a lot of pressure mounting on this guy. And Dan actually, because of all this pressure, decides, you know what? Let's beat it. I think I got to take my family out of Denver. There's a lot of bad memories here. There's a lot of uh, suspicious glances at the uh, Trader Joe's. Let's get the hell out of here. My kids are still young. They can start over elsewhere. Let's hit the refresh button. In 1981, Dan and his three kids moved to Arkansas to live closer to his parents. 
So Dan's move to Arkansas, he's left Colorado behind, the police are left scratching their heads, they're sort of at a standstill, and then something absolutely unbelievable happens. The actual killer confesses. It's winter 1981 in Denver, Colorado, and the Hicks case at that point is going cold. Police had already cataloged a good amount of financial evidence against Dan, And like we said, this guy seemed like a pretty dodgy character in that regard. Uh, But you can't equate a guy who sucks with money and is kind of a dick to being a killer. So in walks Robert Bertolini, Dan's bookie. Yes, that bookie. He's this stocky, dark-bearded, round-faced, 35-year-old guy. And something is weighing on this guy's conscience. So he walks into the police station and he tells police that he just can't hide it anymore. He is haunted by the image of what he did and that he's the one who stabbed Joanne Hicks. And the police are stunned. The killer has walked in and served himself up to them on a plate. This never happens. Not only that, but he's willing to do everything he can to make this right, including full cooperation. They weren't even looking to this guy. Here they were tailing Dan, and this guy walks in, and they must have been absolutely shocked. But that doesn't answer the question of why, right? Why did he kill Joanne Hicks? Was this part of some plot to get back at Dan for not paying his gambling losses? Or was it a plot to kill Dan just gone wrong? Or is it something else entirely? Well, Bertolini's gonna answer that question. He says, yes, I did the dirty work, but killing Joanne was never my idea. It was a paid hit. And the man who hired him to do it, Dan Hicks. A thousand miles away in Hot Springs, Arkansas, Dan Hicks is out Christmas shopping with one of his kids when the police arrest him. He is brought to jail on charges of first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder. And he waits in a cell there until he's transferred back to Denver for trial. Free trip, free flight. (laughs) And you know that guy worries about money. Worries about money. He's saving money on the—he didn't have to use his points. That's got to be his rose. But I think that his thorn is that at the same time the confessed killer, Robert Bertolini, who's getting charged with the same thing— first-degree murder and conspiracy is going to get a plea deal for cooperating. This is a hard pill to swallow. I mean, obviously, if what Bertolini says is true, then Dan should be held responsible. But since Bertolini's the actual killer, doesn't it seem like he shouldn't get any deals? I don't know. Yes, but the police have their eyes set on Dan Hicks for this. They want to get him. They've invested all of this time and energy into them. But it is a weird situation for sure. Dick Spriggs is the man prosecuting Bertolini for the murder. And he actually puts in a good word for him, which again, this this doesn't really usually happen. But he does say, without this confession, the Joanne Hicks murder case would not have been solved. Like, they weren't going to go find out it was Bertolini. They weren't close to that. Right. So... He is putting to rest this case, and um, he gets maybe, points for that. Yeah, he does. I mean, it's a plea deal. So this plea deal, the first degree murder charge against him is dropped. Instead, he is only tried or charged for conspiracy to commit murder. 
They also dropped two charges of embezzlement and robbery from other pending cases against him. And to boot, he's also the guy that hired someone to light Dan Hicks' car on fire. So those charges, coincidentally enough, are also dropped. Oh, so the car, the car bomb, the charred radio knobs, that was his work? Weirdly enough, the bookie is the one that did it. The whole dang time. I mean, at the end of the day, what's interesting about this is he has a pretty nice deal with the DA after being a criminal and killing someone. A lot of Rose, not as much Thorn. Well, in exchange for his guilty plea, Robert Bertolini is now going to testify against Dan Hicks when the time comes. In 1983, the Dan Hicks trial is approaching. Enter stage left, Larry Posner. He's a 35-year-old defense lawyer with a solid reputation in Denver, and he is up against an avalanche of damning evidence. Once Bertolini comes forward with his side of the story, the holes in the police department investigation against Dan Hicks are pretty filled out. They have a full story, a full case against Dan Hicks that they can charge him. Bertolini's confession allows the police to have enough evidence to fully indict Dan Hicks. Without his confession, their evidence is circumstantial at best. So Larry Posner knows that if he's going to protect his client, he's going to have to tear Bertolini's story to shreds. And standing against Posner is the same prosecutor who put Bertolini behind bars. Enter stage right, Dick Spriggs. Great name. He's bearded, bespectacled, and balding. Ooh, say that three times fast. (laughs) At 48 years old, he is more experienced. He is better resourced to argue this case than Larry Posner. He has got the smoking gun, or I guess in this case, the bloody knife at his beck and call. He's got financial documents that prove Dan Hicks was money hungry and that he stood to gain a million dollars from his wife's death. This is not exactly what she would call a fair fight. And to make matters even more heightened, the prosecutor is seeking the death penalty for Dan Hicks. It's a case where everything seems stacked against him. But for Larry Posner and Dick Spriggs, it's a battle of David versus Goliath. Robert Bertolini takes the stand against Dan Hicks. And in his testimony, he tries to portray himself as this repentant murderer, right? The guy who has deep regret for what he's done, who was only seeking to reveal the truth and confessing to the police. And he actually seems to think of himself as an honest man with a good heart who made a horrible, horrible choice. But the reason he is here today is to repent for his crimes. As Dick Spriggs walks Bertolini through the story, he establishes a few key facts. Bertolini testifies that he was hired by Dan in late 1980 to kill his wife, Joanne, because he, quote, doesn't give a damn about her and would rather cash in on a million-dollar life insurance policy he took out in her name than continue this marriage. Bertolini says that Dan offered him $7,500 up front and another $7,500 at the back end when the job was done. And he actually showed Bertolini the life insurance policy as proof that he would be able to pay when the job was done. But Dan never paid him in full, which is probably why he's writing him out now. He never got paid. Wow. Bold move. Bertolini says that the plan was for Dan to leave town to establish an alibi, and he would go to Albuquerque, New Mexico, 
on this kind of fake business trip and tell his wife that Bertolini was his bookie, that he was coming over to pay out his latest winnings so that she would just let him inside without suspicion. And Dan even called her to make sure that Bertolini was let inside. He talked to her on the phone knowing that she was with Bertolini, knowing that Bertolini was there to kill her. And as Bertolini puts it, things would have gone even more horrifically because he and Dan had been planning this murder for months. And in that time, Bertolini had other opportunities to kill Joanne. Yeah, and he tried to. I mean, he testifies that one night he showed up and waited outside their home and he was ready to kill her, but then her mom showed up. So he calls Dan and he tries to kind of like explain in code what's going on, what the situation Mm -hmm. is. And Dan answers in code saying something like, You are aware there are two horses in the stable. I want to sell them both. To which Bertolini replied, the cost of feed will be double. And Dan said, no problem. The insinuation being, of course, that he was fine with Bertolini killing both of them. Guy doesn't even have a life insurance policy on the mom. But it's, you know, collateral damage to get this million was uh, presumably fine with him. Jeez, it's like premeditated is one thing. This is like premeditated five times over with the amount of opportunities that he was trying to kill her. To bolster Bertolini's testimony, he's got to give some color. He's got to give some, you know, flavor to it. Dick Spriggs calls Dan's coworkers to the stand. He asks them why Dan would go on a business trip to Albuquerque, and they testify that the business trip doesn't even make sense. Dan left for his work trip a week after Thanksgiving. If anybody here recalls, he works for children's clothing. And if anyone here has ever worked retail, we know that no one is leaving their store to buy things between Thanksgiving and New Year's because that's the busiest time of year. The timing of this, quote, sales trip is just super bonkers, really strange, and it leads investigators to believe that it was solely to establish an alibi. Dick Spriggs also calls to the stand the insurance agent who issued the life insurance policy to Dan. And he corroborates this part of the story that Dan did, in fact, take out a $1.1 million life insurance policy on his wife, Joanne, and he took out a much less $800,000 policy on himself. But, you know, they're two very high numbers. Okay. But very incriminating. A day before the murder, Dan bursts into the insurance office in a fury. He's amped up because he says after looking more closely at the paperwork, he realized that there was a misprint and rather than $1.1 million, the policy listed was only for $100,000. And Dan is going nuts. He's belligerent. He insists that this get corrected immediately, which really does certainly give you the feeling that he was planning to collect imminently. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit it's a bit wild. I'm just curious too, it's like you're paying the premium and you just notice this. It's a little bit like getting your ducks in a row before the murder. I'm imagining the insurance guy sitting there behind this desk <laughs> yeah. and this guy walks in going ape shit that the policy's <laughs> off and it's like, hey, we'll correct it. Like it's then, just a misprint, sir. You're fine. And like, then his wife is dead the next day. Weird. <sighs> Weird. Oof. And evidence on Dan Hicks' financial transactions in the year leading up to and right after the murder show a man who we know is obsessed with money. 
He's living well beyond his means. He's bouncing checks repeatedly. He buys a $155,000 home. This is in the 80s, so that's like $4 million. He's gambling on football games weekly, and he's playing the penny stock market. He's playing fast and loose with his money. But we know he loves to look wealthy and dress to the nines, all while he's missing credit card payments and mortgage payments. It's not looking good. Yeah, the guy bought a grand piano. Uh... <laughs> few weeks ago he and doesn't he doesn't know how even to play, play. <laughs> dan doesn't make a lot of money his salary is around i don't know like twenty-four thousand a year but he's telling everybody that he makes a hundred thousand before the prosecution rests their case though they're gonna call one final witness another co-worker of dan's robin platt who this testimony not good because platt says that two weeks before the murder He and Dan were out, they were having dinner, splitting some apps, and out of nowhere, in the middle of the conversation, Dan asks Platt, who's Mormon, if a person could be forgiven for murder in his religion. It was really small at the time, but it stuck with this guy, Platt. And after the death of Joanne, Platt started replaying that moment in his head, and to him, it felt like a sort of admission of guilt. And with that, the prosecution rests their case. Well played, Goliath. Let's see what David's going to do with this. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. When it comes to Dan Hicks' defense, Larry Posner, he's not going to go for the usual tack. He's not interested in, I don't know, calling his own witnesses. Not even concerned with making Dan look good. The prosecutor has assembled by now a mostly incontrovertible set of facts. Well, incontrovertible is not the word I would use because... That's just because you don't know what it means. It's true. I don't know what it means, <laughs> and I didn't have time to look it up, but... The facts that he established are all dependent on Robert Bertolini's confession. That's it. I wouldn't call that incontrovertible. Those are convertible facts. So all Larry cares about is making Bertolini look bad. He aims to discredit their star witness so that his testimony becomes less and less reliable. And one of Posner's first questions on cross-examination of Bertolini is something to the effect of, do you consider yourself an honest man, Mr. Bertolini? And Posner knows that Bertolini's going to say yes, but he gives him 
more than a yes, better than a yes. He says, yes, I am an honest man of great integrity. Do you think he was doing a little happy dance internally when he heard that? Oh, for sure. Because from there, Posner uses that reply to outline the numerous charges against Robert Bertolini that the prosecution has actually dropped in exchange for his testimony. So it's already becoming clouded. Right. Bertolini was going to be charged with embezzlement. Allegedly, he'd created a fake construction training company that promised to teach students a bunch of different trades. He made stationery for this company. He listed the fake courses. He got a P.O. box. And guess what arrived in that P.O. box? A bunch of envelopes of tuition money from all the victims of this scam. And according to the D.A., he pocketed all of it. Also, in addition to this, Bertolini was going to be charged with robbery, too, because years earlier, he allegedly attempted to rob a house in Arapahoe County. Again, all of these charges were dropped as part of his plea deal. Listen, this guy is not a picture of integrity, yet he calls himself a, quote, honest man of great integrity. I feel like I'm a good person. And listen, I don't think I would say that about myself. And I haven't committed half of these crimes, not even any of these crimes. It's quite the bold statement. And defense lawyer Larry Posner is going to portray Bertolini as anything but that. He portrays him as a chronic liar, as a con man. Mm-hmm. He could have made up this whole thing about Hicks just in order to make a deal with investigators to drop other charges against him. He's not a man that can be trusted. That's the bottom line. Not by anybody, and certainly not by the jury. And to put a little cherry on top of this quote discrediting the witness Sunday, Posner makes an outrageous accusation. He accuses Bertolini of working for the Small Doan family which the Denver Post calls Denver's long-entrenched organized crime cartel. He says that Bertolini forced Stan Hicks to work for them, too, transporting drugs on a chartered plane under an assumed name. And it is absolutely true that Dan Hicks hired chartered planes under false names leading up to the murder. In fact, he took those planes from business trips that he was on back to Denver. The prosecution suggests that these trips were part of Dan's attempt to kill his wife himself, but that he'd lose his nerve and he'd go back to the business trip not having done it, and eventually he'd hire Bertolini to do what he couldn't. Now, Larry Posner insists that his client Dan isn't a killer, he's just a criminal, and that these planes were he and Bertolini's way to just cover up drug trafficking. And this accusation um, that Posner makes about working for the Smaldone family ruffles some feathers outside the courthouse. The Smaldone family is actually pretty upset at these blasphemous accusations. They actually go to the newspapers to deny any involvement in drug dealing. They call drug dealers the filthiest scum of the earth. And I don't think the Smaldones were in the habit of talking to the press. No! No! <laughs> But in a battle between David and Goliath, you can't pull punches. And Larry Posner most definitely does not. Yeah, with that, he rests his case, somewhat surprisingly, without calling any of his own witnesses. So here we are. We're finally at the moment we've all been waiting for, the verdict. 
Tuesday, March 15, 1983, after only six hours of deliberation, the jury returns to the courtroom, and the tension in the room is high. It could really go either way. Yeah, the tension between Dan Hicks and his lawyer, Larry Posner, must be palpable. In fact, I think he remarked something to Larry Posner along the lines of, let's see how badly you screwed this up. And the jury announces, we the jury find the defendant, Daniel Hicks, not guilty. Gavel, 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 gavel. (laughs) Just like you listers out there, the entire courtroom seems genuinely stunned and you just are left wondering what in the world tipped the bar. As the jurors would later say, they just didn't trust Bertolini. As much as they're suspicious of Dan Hicks, there was enough reasonable doubt to acquit him. Asked about his plans for the future, Hicks says he'll live his life one day at a time. Joanne's family is absolutely devastated. Her mother screams, where is our God? And repeats, the babies, the babies. And she's no doubt referring to the kids who have been in her family's custody during the trial. And now, because he's acquitted, they go back to live with Dan Hicks. When asked about the trial, defense attorney Larry Posner says, the man had a fair trial, and that's the way the system works. I mean, yeah, that is the way the system works. He did have a fair trial, but I can't help but feel like, my God, he did it. I I think he did it, right? Right? Frankly, I'd be amazed if he wasn't the one behind this. But the story doesn't end there. We have a little bit more for you, and it takes place in April of 1997. It's been 14 years since the verdict. Dan Hicks is still living in Arkansas with his three kids at home, and he's getting anxious. This month, Robert Bertolini is getting out of prison for the murder of Joanne. And in the weeks leading up to the release, Dan makes a number of calls. He calls both the defense attorney and the prosecutor in his case, Larry Posner and Dick Spriggs. Larry Posner says that Dan seemed very agitated and worried about Bertolini's release. Dan tells Dick Spriggs that he wants to go undercover for him and try to find out who was really behind Joanne's murder. He also calls his mother-in-law, June Murray, and asks if she'd take care of the kids if anything were to happen to him. Hicks has taken at least three life insurance policies out on himself, naming various people beneficiaries. He seems terrified that Bertolini is going to do something to him. Terrified enough to do something crazy. According to Hicks' business partner, Dan told him about a plan to kill Bertolini once he's out. What isn't totally clear is if this was revenge for killing his wife or for testifying against him, or maybe just beating him to the punch he thinks he has coming, right? So on Friday, April 17th, 1997, Robert Bertolini is given his very first unescorted pass from a Tennessee prison. Six hours later, Dan Hicks is found dead in his Arkansas home, 600 miles away. What exactly happened is not completely clear. As a local detective puts it, a lot of things don't make sense. 
Arkansas police put four detectives on this case. But in the end, the conclusion they come to is a simple one. Dan Hicks was on his way to kill Robert Bertolini, and while he was packing up a sawed-off shotgun, it went off and he accidentally shot himself. You can try to draw your own conclusions as to why Dan wanted to kill Robert Bertolini. There is only one person I know who could help us understand how a case so clear could become so muddy. He's the man who defended Dan Hicks, Larry Posner, or as I like to call him, Dad. Okay, so listen, we want to jump right in because we've just talked about the case, the crime, the trial. So the question on everyone's mind right now is, what was Quinn like as a baby? So important. Uh, I will tell you, she was a very difficult child. She (laughs) cried immense quantities. She would start in the afternoon, every afternoon, and would cry continuously until she cried herself out late at night. And Quinn came very close to being an only child because of it. I, I got to tell you, Raydell just thought, I'm not going through this again. Um, I was hazing was, her. I was just hazing her. I just we, wanted to see what you guys were made of. Yeah, we, we used to. And, and one of the things that would sometimes calm her down was to ride in her car seat. So we would, we would drive around Denver aimlessly for hours. Oh, my gosh. So oh this, gosh. I mean, this I'm case, it's so funny. About it. Well, that's really funny that you <laughs> mentioned that because this case happened right when Quinn was born. Like, that's what's crazy is you're crying at home and then you're winning a case in the court, which I think is really impressive, actually. Um, how did you end up representing Daniel Hicks? How did he find you? I mean, they didn't have Yelp way back in the 80s. So what was no. that like? You know, Denver was still a relatively small criminal defense community. And, you know, there are choices other than me. But um, I don't know. He just uh, he wandered in. The case came to me. Uh, I think he'd had another lawyer before me and switched uh, very early, very early in the case. That's my memory. Um, but there he was with this bizarre case. So he comes in, you look at all the, uh, evidence, or I guess it starts to amass. And as you're looking at all this evidence, what is going through your head? Okay. So here's what happens at the beginning of the case under Colorado law, the prosecution has to hand over its entire file. So they give me the file, and I take it home, and I'm reading it and reading it and reading it. And my first thought was, this is the most bizarre scenario I've ever seen. It's got chartered Learjets and, mm. and allegations of, of uh, gambling debts being paid off, and, and Dan is given a statement that implicates another family uh, in crime and I mean, it just was endless mysteries inside of mysteries. Most of these cases are, are straightforward. They're all whodunits. Mm-hmm. But, but often the crime itself 
is pretty straightforward. This was just bizarre. When you get a case that's sort of like this muddy and the water is murky in terms of it not being clear, is is there a part of you that wants to solve it or do you kind of take it in this cloudy state and use that to build your defense? You know, you, you, the defense never solves the case. It, it, yeah. The way we run it in America, which I think is the right way, is is does the government have proof beyond a reasonable doubt? Because the defendants can never prove innocence. And if you try to prove innocence, you just get yourself in trouble because you keep saying to the jury, I can prove he didn't do it. And then the jury decides you haven't proved he didn't do it. Mm -hmm. And therefore I'm voting guilty. But that's not what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to say, do I have a reasonable doubt that your client's guilty? Which is different than innocence. When you explained that, which I, I don't know if you did, but basically like that sounds like a really sound tactic to use. How did Daniel Hicks feel about that tactic? Like, is there something where a client comes to you like that and really wants you to be proving their innocence and you're saying, no, 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 that's not what we're going to do. We're going to do this. And then how do they feel about that as a tactic? Uh, there are some clients, very few, who are that outspoken, and and they say to me, I you know I am innocent, and I say, well that you know, that's interesting, but that's not what the case is about. Mm. Um, and and what do you want me to do? Put you on the stand, and you're going to say to a jury, I didn't do it. Do you really think that's persuasive? It may be that you didn't do it, but you know I have to deal with evidence, and. You simply saying, I didn't do it, isn't, isn't particularly evidence. You know, you know, it's there, a jury could consider it, but it's just so much safer to try reasonable doubt than to try innocence. Right. Did you, when you got this case, did you know from the get-go that you wouldn't call any witnesses? Was that like a clear um, game plan when you got this evidence? Because that's like that feels like a crazy. I mean, that feels like such a gamble from an outside perspective. But I'm curious if that's if you if that's something a tactic you use often. Uh, it is a tactic I used often and, and still use. I don't don't like calling witnesses in criminal cases um, if I can avoid it. Now I was willing to call witnesses, but a lot of the things I'd call witnesses to prove I can get from Bertolini from the snitch. I mean, he's a He's a crooked guy. He's a, he's a guy who committed crimes. He's a guy with a, a bad past. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't need, I don't need to, to call somebody else to talk about him. I can get him to talk about him. Mm. And then on the Dan Hicks side of it, there were family friends, and even family friends who didn't like Dan and were suspicious of him. But when called to give their part of the case, even though they weren't on his side, they'd have to admit nobody saw Dan fight with his wife. He didn't have a he didn't have a bad relationship. He had a loving relationship. So so getting the the even prosecution witnesses to say, you know, I didn't see any signs of marital discord, I can get that from their witnesses. And the more you call witnesses, the more the jury wants you to call more witnesses. So if I call one witness, then their first question is going to be, well, then why didn't you call Dan? Mm. So oh, it's, to me, it's just easier to, to, to say, I believe there is a reasonable doubt now 
at the close of the prosecution case, and I don't need to add to it. If, if I'm at reasonable doubt, I don't get a bonus for extra reasonable doubt. Mm-hmm. So leaving aside all uh, guilt and innocence, what was Dan like as a client? He was a charming guy. He had a lot of personality. Um, but he was a very troubled guy. And, and you know, people try to do this, so-and-so didn't behave the way I would have expected for somebody whose wife was murdered. What is the right behavior? Right. <laughs> how do we begin to judge people? How much they cry? How little they cry? And then you hear people say, you know, he cried too much and or he try, mm-hmm. cried too little. You know, what do you do if your wife has been murdered and now you're in jail with no bond because it's, it's a first-degree murder charge and somebody else is taking care of your kids? What's the right, what's the frame of mind any of us would have? Mm-hmm. You're pretty much distant. You're, you're in a space that you cannot conceive of. There's nothing in your life, it seems to me, that prepares you for that. And therefore, I think clients like Dan are numb. They're just, Mm -hmm. every day is a difficult day. I have a question. You might not be able to answer it and tell me to back off. But in this specific case, did you feel confident that you would win? Oh, no. No, no, no. no. Okay. Criminal, Criminal defense lawyers almost never feel confident that you're going to win. you got gotcha. to remember, no matter what, the jury thinks there must be a good reason your client is here. Right. And the next thing is, the case is profoundly sad. And what we learn about sad cases, the sadder the case, every case is tragic, but the sadder the case... Mm the more the jury feels that they got to do something to somebody and your client's the one they're going to do it to. But the prosecutor in the Hicks case was a guy named uh, Richard Spriggs, Dick Spriggs, and he was at least 10 years older than me, maybe 15, extraordinarily experienced prosecutor, and he was wonderful. He was the most prepared, the most ethical the best trial lawyer I'd ever come up against. Um, he gave an opening statement in Hicks that was at least two hours long, and I think it had oh. an intermission. <laughs> and it was everything I could do. I think it did, really. And it was everything I could do to, to keep from standing up and applauding because <laughs> as a lawyer, no, 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 as a lawyer, I'm listening to another lawyer put together strands of, of weaving facts, and he did it elegantly. Darn it. I mean, he was, he was just a wonderful lawyer. Now, I got to tell you, we can do this show another 99 times, and I'm not going to have much good to say about prosecutors. Mm, <laughs> it's yeah. not part of my fabric to brag about prosecutors. But the prosecutors in this case were phenomenal people, and and. And we're friends before and and after. So it's a funny, rare, rare case where everybody got along before, during, and after. Now, during, though, you are adversaries. There's not, let's go out and 
have some yucks after trial. Mm -hmm. You are fighting with everything you have intellectually. But it was one of those cases that was devoid of anger, personal anger, between the lawyers, which I think helps. All that anger just gets in the way. Well, that that makes it feel like the system is, I mean, cordial, right? I mean, I think my yeah. experience is watching, you know, yeah. Law and Order or these shows where it it doesn't feel like that between Carrie. That is the one area where I, it's okay for you to say you watched Law and Order. <laughs> I, I got it. There's nothing. There's nothing on TV that's accurate. Okay. But, yes. But yes. I got to tell you, criminal defense lawyers do not get along with prosecutors. We do not, and prosecutors do not like us, and they view us as only one half step removed from the criminals, and they'd indict us too if they could. Whoa. So I don't want to give you a false impression. The, the feeling in across the board, across America, prosecutors and defense lawyers do not get along. They come from completely different mindsets. This was just that rare case wow. where we did get along. Mm. Wow. And it's easier, it's better, but it's rare. Um, how did Dick Spriggs react to the verdict? Well, it's funny. Dick Spriggs uh, later became Judge Spriggs and became a judge in Denver District Court and was a beloved judge. Now, here is an ex-prosecutor. People think when an ex-prosecutor becomes a judge that they have it in for the defense. They don't. An ex-prosecutor usually becomes a pretty good judge because they know what's going on. They know weak cases from strong cases. And he got interviewed as a judge, and they said, what, what's your favorite case? And he said to them, um, strangely enough, it's a case I lost. It's, it's People v. Hicks. I have a question. You talk a lot about your respect for uh, Dick Spriggs, and um, I've heard you speak before about the judge in this case and your respect for him, but I imagine there's a lot of cases where um, things are more adversarial and you're not a huge fan of either the judge or the prosecutor, and they're not a huge fan of yours. And yeah. I'm wondering if when you know that to be the case— does it affect strategy, or is strategy static no matter the personal relationships in the room? It, it affects strategy. First, when you dislike a prosecutor, and there's some that are just, they're just jerks. They're just, we used to say, prosecuted school is, is on day one they teach evidence, and on day two they, they take a field trip to go kill baby chicks. So I got to tell you guys, if you got a big prosecutor audience, we're losing them now. Going right in the. I think. Going right in the. If we had an audience of lawyers, they'd be like, "Stop! You're saying all the wrong things." <laughs> right. Be quiet. <laughs> Shut up, you two. Um, so, but what you got to do? The angrier you get at a prosecutor, the more it messes with your head. You because then you begin to adopt tactics that are based on your anger, and it's always a mistake. You've got to put it aside, leave them out of the equation, and do what you plan to do in a normal voice. Now, they're, got to say, their judges, you know, their judges just don't like us. They're judges that don't like criminal defense lawyers. Now, they'll never admit that. They'll, you'll never find a judge who says, I'm anything other than the most fair person you ever met. They have a belief system. I'm not saying that they're corrupt. It's just if a cop says that he's driving down the street and his window was rolled down in the dead of winter 
and he could smell marijuana wafting from a, a house. There are judges who believe this stuff, you know, and say, oh, of course. Okay, I, they truly believe it. There are judges who I think don't like us. They don't appreciate us. Nothing I can do. It's their courtroom. They own the room. They make the rules. You've got to learn how to behave, how to always be professional, how to always show respect, because if you, if you, if you color inside the lines and you show respect, which is always owed to the system, to judging itself, you've got a better chance of getting through the case without an emotional outburst on either side. In addition to um, a snitch being like center of attention in this particular trial, there was also this sort of wild story about the drug trafficking that came not only from the snitch, but from your client, Dan Hicks. So yeah. I'm very curious. <laughs> Wait, I want to be very about... clear because this, this is not an, a visual medium. As soon as Quinn brought this up, Larry started rubbing his face going, oh, God, this. <laughs> just feel like we should paint <laughs> that small picture. small tones. No, well, I guess I'm just, like, curious. Like, you have a newborn um, at home with your wife, yes, and yes. you are publicly pissing off a very powerful, potentially dangerous, organized crime family? I don't know if they were organized. They were more disorganized crime <laughs> I mean, let's not, this is not like the Godfather. This is, this is, Denver is relatively low level organized anything. It's, but, but they, they had a reputation, whether it was deserved or not, they had a reputation. So what's your question? I guess my question is at any point, were you, at any point in this trial, were you afraid of any of these dodgy characters that we're talking about? No. Um, no. Huh? no, no, no. I can tell you, you're never afraid of your client. People, people say to criminal defense lawyers, aren't you afraid of your client? Why would I be afraid of my client? My, I'm, I'm the one trying to get them out of trouble. They're not, they're not going to do something to me. You, you brought up the families, and I did want to touch on that a little bit, if that's okay, of, you know, by the time you get this case, the crime, the ele- you know, the alleged crime has been committed, um, and you're entering this case with this information, do you have to have sort of a healthy divide between, you know, the case and the victims? I mean, how how do you how do you create that for yourself in the position? Because I think, you know, I mean, you're defending these alleged criminals and, I, you know, so I'm, can you really see the victim? Like, how did how does that feel to you? Yeah. Oh, it feels terrible. Mm-hmm. One of the terrible things about about the criminal justice system is we can't put Humpty Dumpty together again. You're conscious of the victims. And it's a profound sadness. But you can't do anything about it. Mm. You, can't, you can't lessen the suffering. All you can do is do what the Constitution orders us to do, which is to say you defend the person using the rules of evidence and the facts available the instructions of law, and if the jury finds a reasonable doubt, they are to vote not guilty. I want to go back to the Dan Hicks case. I specifically want to go back to the part that I actually find the most fascinating, which is the Dan's death, actually. I'm just like, oh what the heck? 
happened. happened. And I know you don't know the answer, but, and I know that this was, we're coming up right now actually on exactly 40 years pretty much since it, uh, the verdict. Happy 40th birthday, so, Quinn. <laughs> thank you. Um, so obviously 14 years afterwards, Dan ends up dead of what will end up being ruled as a self-inflicted by accident gunshot wound. So I know that he called you before Bertolini got out because he was nervous. And I know that he called Dick Spriggs to say, I can help you. Let's try to figure out who killed Joanne. Basically, he's making a lot of erratic phone calls. He's got a bunch of life insurance policies on himself that people will benefit from. And he's asking folks, will you take care of my kids if something happens? Do you have any memory of this period and what was going through your head when he called you and what you thought when he ended up dead? Well, I never I never worried that Robert Bertolini would get out of prison and do something to Dan Hicks. That that happens in movies, but it really doesn't happen in life. Um, so I was not, you know, I thought, this is a guy getting out of prison. The last thing he wants is to go back to prison. He wants to go somewhere and try to put his life together, and nothing's going to come of this. The mm-hmm. thing I remember most was getting the phone call, uh, I believe from the prosecution, from Spriggs saying, you're not going to believe this, Dan Hicks is dead. And my first thought was, oh, yeah? Somebody killed his wife, and now somebody killed him, and then they do the investigation. And it's clear, I think, that he had reached into a bag and the gun had gone off. Mm -hmm. That's at least the theory. But there was never a theory that somebody else had done it to him. So, you know, how does this happen? In a case where nothing made sense and things happened that we've never seen, now we've got more of it. It is a crazy ending to a crazy story. Truly. Well, it is. And, and, you know, one of the things that worries you at the beginning is the case is so profoundly sad. There is a wonderful woman uh, with children at home and she is stabbed in her bed. Who does such a terrible crime? Who possibly could think that that is that you should ever be involved in something like that? So one of the things that worries you is some crimes are just so sad that jurors say somebody's got to pay. Larry, thank you so, so much thank for you giving so us much. your time. You're like Ugh. a father to me. And I just... Ugh. You're like a you. father to my friend. It's just, it means so much. This is, this is, it's been a slice of heaven. Thanks, All right. Larry. Bye, Larry. Okay. Catch more gripping stories pulled straight from the headlines with all new original series and movies on Lifetime and stream on the Lifetime app or on demand. Check out mylifetime.com to find out what's airing because it might just be the case we talk about next. We used many sources in our research for today's episode. Among the most useful were the following. An article from the Rocky Mountain News entitled, Salesman Held and Slain of Wife, Hired Killer, Insurance Plot Alleged, by Jane Holtz, and reporting from Howard Pankratz in the Denver Post. If you'd like to learn more about this story, we highly recommend you check out these sources. Special thanks to the Denver Public Library for helping us find articles on this case, and to Larry Posner for talking to us and for providing the genetic material necessary to produce this show. Crime of a Lifetime is produced by Tanner Robbins. 
Our associate producers are Hazel May and us. Quinlan Posner and Carrie Epimo. Our sound designer and editor is Arlen Ginsberg. Our senior producer is John Thrasher. McKamey Lynn is our supervising producer and Jesse Cass is our executive producer. If you like what you hear on the show, please subscribe, rate, and review Crime of a Lifetime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.